there's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. He was the only president in American history to serve two non-consecutive terms in office. But did you know Grover Cleveland had a secret son? If you enjoy this episode, Scandal number 35 from our countdown, and want to hear more, check out our series, Political Scandals. Every Tuesday leading up to the 2020 election, we're highlighting the most shocking events in American politics. Follow Political Scandals free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. In the year leading up to the 2020 election, we're counting down the biggest scandals in American political history. This is number 35, the story of the secret son President Grover Cleveland fathered by way of sexual assault. A note for our listeners, this story involves discussion of sexual assault. While not graphic, this content may be disturbing for some listeners. Put yourself into Maria Halpin's shoes for a moment. It's February of 1874, and you're a 37-year-old widow who has just realized she's pregnant. Now you've got to make the most difficult decision of your life. You live in a boarding house in downtown Buffalo, New York. What little money you make as a store clerk won't suffice to raise a child alone. And besides... Your child won't have any kind of a respectable life if he doesn't carry his father's name. He'll be called bastard and shut out of polite society. You need the father's involvement, his surname, and his financial support. And to get those things, you need to tell him about your pregnancy. But you know there's only one possible father, Grover Cleveland. And the only possible opportunity for conception came in the form of a sexual assault. Of course, you could give birth in secret, surrender the baby to an orphanage, and forget it ever happened. Go on with your life and hope your child is adopted by a kindly couple who will treat the baby as their own. But as you envision yourself giving birth and then walking away empty-handed, an ache gnaws at your soul. You want this child. You want to be its mother. So, you decide. You're going to have to speak to Mr. Cleveland, a man whose face you'd hoped you'd never see again. You can only hope and pray that he'll be kind. If not for your sake, then for the sake of his child. He won't be. Welcome to Political Scandals, a ParCast original. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of Political Scandals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
To stream political scandals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type political scandals in the search bar. At Parcast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. In 1870, a 33-year-old lawyer named Grover Cleveland was elected sheriff of Erie County, New York. For a hard-drinking, gambling bachelor like Cleveland, the county seat of Buffalo was the perfect place to be. Erie County wasn't exactly the Wild West, but it wasn't far from it. At that time, it was commonly believed that Buffalo had more bars in proportion to its population than any other town in America, with about 600 taverns and 150,000 people. That's one bar for every 250 residents. Not a drinker? No problem. Buffalo offered plenty of other opportunities to indulge in vice, from gambling houses to brothels. Canal Street, which ran parallel to the Erie Canal, was synonymous with sex work. The saying, there's a new sheriff in town, usually refers to a crackdown on bad behavior. But when Cleveland became sheriff, nothing changed in Erie County. He kept his predecessors under sheriff and left him in charge of most everything. Cleveland preferred to spend his time fishing and smoking cigars while collecting the job's significant paycheck. And of course, he devoted some time to courting the shop girl at the local dry goods store, Maria Halpin. Maria Halpin was both beautiful and intelligent. In her private life, she was raising two children, only one of whom lived with her in Buffalo. Her widowhood and recent arrival in Buffalo gave her a certain air of mystery. Some of the local housewives came to her sales counter just to chat with her. She always seemed to have a unique, clever take on any subject they brought up. She could even debate the events of the day in French. In short, she was the talk of the town. Cleveland was anxious to meet her. He asked a friend to set up an introduction to Ms. Halpin. She, being a respectable lady of her day, did not agree immediately. She inquired about Sheriff Cleveland's reputation at her church, as well as amongst her friends. It's likely that because no one wanted to upset the sheriff, nobody told Maria about his drinking and gambling. And surely it wasn't mentioned that he didn't even do his own job, or that he spent most of his days smoking and fishing. Several well-regarded people even stepped forward to vouch for his character, including Mrs. Emma Folsom, the wife of Cleveland's best friend, Oscar. She often shopped at Maria's counter at the dry goods store. Perhaps Mrs. Folsom really thought Cleveland meant to settle down after 36 years as a bachelor. Maria was an appropriate choice, after all. She was the right age, beautiful, and well-educated. Emma either didn't know or simply didn't tell Maria that Grover Cleveland was romantically interested in the Folsom's nine-year-old daughter, Frances. When Cleveland's sister prodded him about settling down, he replied that he was, quote, 
waiting for my wife to grow up. The age of sexual consent in New York at the time was 10. So in purely legal terms, Grover would have only had to wait one more year to wed Frances. But while marrying a preteen girl wasn't illegal if her parents agreed, it was certainly gauche. Lest you think Grover Cleveland's pedophilia was limited to Francis, it's worth noting that he decorated his third-floor apartment with photos of children. Not his nieces and nephews, not even children he knew, just a bunch of pictures of kids. He attributed the peculiar decor to a harmless fondness for children. But even at the time, people talked. They'd have talked more if they knew about his plans for his friend's daughter. Cleveland didn't want to hurt his reputation as a lawyer by marrying Frances while she was still a child. So while he waited for her to mature, he'd spend his time with Maria Halpin. Dating a respectable woman would help to dispel the gossip, and it might even cut down on his sister's nagging about marriage. But in the end, there was nothing respectable about how Cleveland treated Maria. We don't know how much time Sheriff Grover Cleveland and Maria Halpin spent together throughout 1873, but the widow wasn't exactly swept off her feet. There was no physical intimacy between them. Perhaps she was waiting for a marriage proposal. Or maybe she just didn't like him that much. Maria did attend some group social events with the sheriff, and she even let him walk her home a few times. But their dates ended chastely at the door of her rented room in a boarding house. She took care to make sure her suitor knew that she lived with her 10-year-old son. But then came the evening of December 15th. Cleveland, with two weeks left in his term as sheriff, strolled down West Swan Street thinking about dinner. The town was already decorated for the Christmas holiday, putting him in a cheerful mood. An even more welcome sight was Maria Halpin, walking the other way. Cleveland rushed to greet her. After exchanging pleasantries, he invited her to accompany him to the Ocean Dining Hall and Oyster House. At first, Maria demurred. She was on her way to her friend's birthday party, but the six-foot-tall sheriff insisted. After several refusals, she finally gave in. Dinner was a perfectly gentlemanly suggestion, coming from a bachelor who had spent months courting her. And he was, after all, the sheriff, not some sort of petty criminal. Unfortunately, Maria had no idea what was really going on in Grover Cleveland's mind. When they met for dinner on December 15, 1873, Cleveland was on his best behavior. Maria may have felt guilty for missing the party she was supposed to attend that night, but she had to admit she was enjoying herself. Perhaps she was hoping her suitor was close to proposing. She wasn't in love with him, but love wasn't seen as a prerequisite for marriage in 1873. After desserts were eaten and the check paid, Maria allowed Mr. Cleveland to walk her home. It would have been ungentlemanly of him not to offer, and unsafe for her not to accept. Buffalo was a crime-ridden town. Maria had every intention of saying goodbye once she was at her door, as per usual. But when she bid her suitor goodnight, instead of leaving, 
he reportedly attacked her in an act of extreme sexual violence. The explicit details were too painful for Maria to describe, even years later in a sworn affidavit. All she would say about the act itself was that he sexually assaulted her by, quote, force and violence and without my consent. Maria's affidavit goes on to say that when the act was finished, he threatened her before leaving. She wrote, He told me he was determined to ruin me if it cost him $10,000 if he was hanged by the neck for it. After hearing those chilling words, Maria did not go to the police. Which was wise of her. The sheriff would certainly have been believed over a widowed shop girl. And at the time, to get a conviction on charges of rape, it was necessary for the victim to prove she'd resisted, quote, to the utmost of her ability, which was basically impossible. Maria decided to forget all about Grover Cleveland. She told him she never wanted to see his face again. And for the next six weeks, she didn't. Maria avoided places he was known to frequent, She refused to speak his name. When his friends' wives came to her counter at the store, she no longer asked them about him. But then, six weeks after the assault, Maria realized she was pregnant. Coming up, we'll look at Grover Cleveland's less-than-glowing response to the birth of his first son. Now, back to the story. Six weeks after she was assaulted by Sheriff Grover Cleveland, 36-year-old Maria Halpin realized she was pregnant. She ran over all the options in her mind. Surgical abortion was severely stigmatized and very dangerous. Giving birth as a single mother would mean losing her job and her place in respectable society. The only way to have the child and give it a proper life was for Grover Cleveland to acknowledge paternity and, if possible, to marry her. Marrying her rapist sounded awful, but the other options were even worse. Before she could second-guess her decision, she sent a note to Mr. Cleveland. When he received the note, Cleveland came to Maria right away. He was kind, solicitous, and reassuring. The monstrous Mr. Hyde Maria had seen just six weeks before seemed to have been replaced with a generous Dr. Jekyll. Cleveland even agreed to marry his victim. He assured her that he was an honorable man and planned to do, quote, everything that was right. He left Maria feeling much better about the situation. It was a terrible thing, the assault and the unplanned pregnancy, but at least the father was stepping up. Maybe they would be able to manage some sort of polite marriage where they didn't have to see much of each other. She shouldn't have trusted him. As the months dragged on, Maria prepared for her baby, and Cleveland debated how to escape what he considered a minor embarrassment. He tried simply delaying, hoping Maria would just give up. But his cold feet had the opposite effect. 
As her pregnancy started showing, she began telling a few people, including a local minister, about the circumstances of conception. Cleveland wouldn't tolerate such a threat to his reputation. He told the minister that Maria had been intimate with several men around the same time and that all the others were married. She was only trying to pin the baby on him because he was a bachelor and the real father wasn't. A woman of loose morals trying to trick a man into marriage sounded more believable than the sheriff raping a respectable lady. The minister sided with Cleveland. When she heard the lies Cleveland told about her, Maria realized her attacker's promises of marriage had been empty. He obviously planned to let her endure the shame of giving birth as a single woman. But still, she hoped that once he saw the face of his first child, he'd be moved to do the right thing. On September 14, 1874, Maria Halpin gave birth at St. Mary's Lying In Hospital. She called her newborn son Oscar Folsom Cleveland after Grover Cleveland's best friend Oscar Folsom. That was the name both parents had agreed upon. Maria kept her word even after Cleveland went back on his. St. Mary's was an unwed mother's hospital where discretion was valued. But the discretion wasn't just about hushing up births out of wedlock. On Grover Cleveland's orders, Maria's doctor arranged for little Oscar to be spirited away at just two days old and given to another woman. The doctor's sister-in-law, Minnie Kendall, was happily married and due to give birth any day. She could nurse Oscar. And both Maria and Cleveland agreed the baby was better off with Mrs. Kendall. For now. What they didn't agree on was the long-term plan. Maria intended to quietly return to respectable society and get Cleveland to the altar. Then, after she and Cleveland were married, they could pretend to adopt their own son. The few people who knew about Maria's pregnancy would be polite enough to forget. Cleveland didn't quite see things the same way. He was glad to be rid of baby Oscar. He never visited the child. Meanwhile, Maria constantly sent the baby gifts. She thought of her son every day, and when, after a year, she was still unwed, she finally decided it was time to reclaim him. Maybe Cleveland's heart would thaw if he had to watch his firstborn son living with a single, unwed mother in a shabby, rented room. We don't know what Maria said to convince her obstetrician to give her baby back, but it worked. Oscar was delivered to Maria Halpin at her boarding house. The baby immediately burst into tears. To him, his mother was a stranger. Even if little Oscar could have remembered Maria, he might not have recognized her. She wasn't the same woman as when she gave birth. Depressed and traumatized, she was drinking heavily. The only thing that gave her life meaning was her ongoing battle with Grover Cleveland. Against all odds, she still believed she could get him to marry her. Instead, her decision to reclaim her baby pushed him to new lows. He hired the police superintendent and two detectives 
to place Maria under surveillance and find a way to take Oscar away from her. In 1875, after the death of his best friend, Cleveland was too busy enjoying his new role as surrogate father to 11-year-old Frances Folsom, the girl he'd been planning to marry since she was nine. Maria and baby Oscar were just distractions, distractions he was eager to remove. The hired detectives came up empty-handed, on to plan B, buying Maria's silence. With the help of a prominent retired judge, Cleveland argued that it was best to place little Oscar in an orphanage. The unwilling father promised to pay his son's board of $5 per week until he was adopted. He also offered Maria money to start a business, preferably somewhere far away. Reluctantly, Maria agreed. She wanted her son to have a two-parent Christian family, and she was ready to accept that Cleveland would never give him that. On March 9, 1876, she signed custody of Oscar Folsom Cleveland over to the Buffalo Orphan Asylum. But not two months later, she changed her mind. On April 28th, Maria kidnapped her own son from the orphanage and disappeared with him. She couldn't bear to be separated from him any longer, even if it meant single motherhood. Grover Cleveland was furious. For the next three months, he used his social position and his ample purse to track down the mother and child. He rehired the detectives he'd previously used to follow Maria. He put her obstetrician back on the payroll, too, for good measure. Finally, on July 10th, they found her. She'd quietly moved back into her old room after hiding out long enough for the place to be searched and found empty. But once they'd found her, the obstetrician and off-duty detectives broke into Maria Halpin's room and tore her son out of her arms. Oscar Folsom Cleveland was shoved into one carriage, and Maria was forced into another. Maria's carriage went to the Providence Lunatic Asylum. She was involuntarily committed for alcoholism based on the sworn statements of the detectives delivering her. They didn't mention being hired by her rapist, of course. Oscar's carriage went to the obstetrician's house and delivered him back into the arms of his former foster mother, Minnie Kendall. Grover Cleveland thought he'd solved all his problems. His son was sent away to a friend who would keep his paternity quiet, and Maria was shut up in the asylum where surely nobody would listen to her allegations of sexual assault. Within less than two weeks, Maria's doctors at the asylum realized that she did have a drinking problem, but not one that required residential treatment. On July 21st, they released her. And Maria was angrier than she'd ever been. This time, to get her son back, she consulted a doctor and a lawyer. After almost three years of begging Grover Cleveland to marry her, she was ready to bring a massive paternity suit. Until she wasn't. In preparation for the lawsuit, Maria had to tell her family everything. And when she did, her brother-in-law laid the guilt on thick telling Maria she'd be ruining her family's good name. A pregnancy out of wedlock was an embarrassment, but at least it could be kept relatively private. 
A paternity suit, meanwhile, would be public. It might even hurt the future marriage prospects of Maria's female relatives. Maria knew what it was like to be stuck without a husband in an era where a woman's worth was determined by her husband. This argument did the trick. She agreed to settle with Grover Cleveland out of court. For the sum of $500, or almost $12,000 today, Maria Halpin agreed to surrender all claims to Oscar Folsom Cleveland and never ask anything of his father again. It was a lousy settlement, much less than she'd have gotten in court. And Maria Halpin, unlike Grover Cleveland, kept her word. After the settlement, she went quietly away, planning never to speak to her rapist or even think of him again. She had no idea that in eight short years, she'd be seeing his name next to hers on the front page of every Republican newspaper in the country. Up next, Grover Cleveland enters the national political stage, and so does his paternity scandal. Now back to the story. In July of 1876, under pressure from her family, Maria Halpin accepted $500 to give up her son, Oscar Folsom Cleveland. The settlement included a promise never to ask his father, Grover Cleveland, for anything else again. After nearly three years of fighting with her rapist, Maria Halpin was broken and defeated. Meanwhile, finally freed of Maria Halpin's constant demands for marriage, Grover Cleveland was thriving. His bachelorhood became an asset in his work with the Democratic Party. Since he didn't have a family to go home to, he spent his evenings networking with party officials and lending them his legal expertise. With his eyes on a political future, Cleveland worked aggressively to rebrand himself. No longer did he haunt taverns and gambling houses. Within five years, he'd completely scrubbed his reputation clean. His new nickname? Grover the Good. In 1881, the new and improved Grover Cleveland was elected mayor of Buffalo. He swept into office on an anti-corruption platform and promptly whipped the grifting Common Council into shape. With a single veto, he saved taxpayers a substantial amount of money that had been earmarked for a political quid pro quo. A year of this Clean Up the Government Act left New York voters hungry for more of the same and at a higher level. The next year, Cleveland was elected governor. In that office, he continued to oppose corruption, even impressing Theodore Roosevelt and other moderate Republicans. In 1884, 47-year-old Grover Cleveland won the Democratic nomination for President of the United States. This was something of a surprise to Cleveland himself. Most party officials preferred another candidate, Samuel Tilden. But Tilden was in poor health and at the last minute declined to be nominated. That left a wide open field. In a contested convention full of bizarre political machinations, Cleveland was nominated on the second ballot. And that was when the doctor came forward. Specifically, the doctor Maria consulted in 1876 while preparing a paternity suit. 
In July of 1884, Dr. George W. Lewis sought out George Ball, a prominent Republican and beloved Baptist pastor. He told him everything he'd heard from Maria all those years ago about Grover Cleveland. Even though he'd have loved to see the Democratic nominee fall from grace, Reverend Ball wasn't about to take one man's word on such sensational allegations. He spoke to the owner of the boarding house where Maria had lived, the attorney who had briefly represented her, and even to the doctors at the Providence Lunatic Asylum. The one person he couldn't find was Maria herself. She seemed to have vanished. Still, Reverend Ball decided he had enough evidence to act. He wrote letters to three newspapers, telling them everything he'd learned. Cleveland was a rapist and a deadbeat father. He'd had his illegitimate son abducted and the boy's mother forced into an asylum just to save his own good name. It was such a sensational accusation that at first no one believed it. A few reporters looked around, but the papers didn't publish it. It was Cleveland's Republican opponent, James Blaine, who finally forced their hand. Somehow, Blaine got a hold of a copy of Reverend Ball's letter and brought it to the Boston Journal, a Republican-leaning newspaper. The journal contacted the reverend, and he was willing to write a sworn affidavit confirming his story. A reporter was even sent to fact-check each of Ball's own sources. But after all of that, they decided against publishing. It was just too explosive a story. But the journal's investigations had alerted a competing paper, the Evening Telegraph. Planning to scoop the journal, the Telegraph got a sworn affidavit of their own from Ball. But neither paper managed to get the story out before the New York Times ran a shocking headline of their own. The Times unexpectedly endorsed Grover Cleveland, calling him a man whose absolute integrity has never been questioned. It was now or never. Immediately after that, the Evening Telegraph published Reverend Ball's statement in full on the front page, with only the preacher's name redacted. It ran under the headline, A Terrible Tale, A Dark Chapter in a Public Man's History. The story painted Grover Cleveland as a monster and Maria Halpin as a loving mother willing to do anything for her son. It was damning. The Republican nominee, James Blaine, couldn't have been luckier. At rallies, his supporters mocked his opponent, chanting, Ma, Ma, where's my pa? It seemed like the election was already won. Even Cleveland himself told his friends that he was done. And then, 800 prominent Republicans endorsed him. No, not because of the rape. Because James Blaine, their own party's nominee, was corrupt as well. And the independent Republican group known as the Mugwumps were sick of seeing their party associated with grift. The Mugwumps endorsement put Cleveland's campaign and his mind back in the game. Instead of preparing for a loss, he now envisioned a path to victory. Cleveland decided to handle the situation the same way he'd always handled it. 
deny, lie, and smear Maria Halpin. He arranged for friends to give interviews suggesting Maria had been intimate with several married men. Cleveland even allowed his now-deceased best friend and his son's namesake, Oscar Folsom, to be named as the possible father. All the while, Maria Halpin remained in hiding, honoring the terms of her eight-year-old settlement agreement. Until finally, in August 1884, a reporter located her, living quietly with her seamstress aunt in New Rochelle, New York. The hordes descended. Reporters, lawyers, and friends of Grover Cleveland all tried to see Maria. The Cleveland camp wanted her to issue a statement taking back her old allegations. The Republican papers wanted her to issue a statement confirming those allegations. Cleveland's allies even tried to bribe Maria's eldest son, Frederick. They offered him a prestigious job, as well as $10,000, if he would get his mother to formally retract her accusations. Frederick consulted with his mother and turned down the offer. Maria became so upset, she fled in the middle of the night, leaving a note saying only, Don't worry, I am going away. It later came out that she believed her life was in danger and went to hide in a safe house in Manhattan provided by the Democratic Party. Still, she kept her silence. It wasn't Maria who finally confirmed the story. It was her brother-in-law, Simeon Talbot, the very man who convinced her not to sue for paternity. After finding out about the attempted $10,000 bribe and Maria's disappearance, Talbot was so angry that he went to the papers himself. It was one thing to buy a woman's silence, and another thing to lie to the entire country. After her brother-in-law confirmed the story, Maria finally came home and spoke out. On October 28, 1884, she sat down with Charles Banks, the owner of the New Rochelle Pioneer, and provided a formal affidavit describing exactly what happened to her on December 15, 1873. A day later, she asked Mr. Banks to come over again. She made a second sworn statement with additional, more explicit details of the sexual assault itself. This might have been the biggest October surprise in the history of politics. Every Republican paper ran the story. Every Democratic paper ignored it, running damaging stories about James Blaine instead. Even with such a serious issue, party affiliation came first. As for Grover Cleveland, he didn't respond to the charges at all. Instead, he went negative against his opponent. Cleveland's surrogates spent the final days of the race hammering home the message about Blaine's corruption. He sent volunteers to spy on Blaine, hoping for an October surprise of his own to lob at the Republican nominee. In particular, Cleveland accused Blaine of being biased against Catholics. This was partially true, but mostly a calculated ploy to obtain the coveted Irish vote. And it worked. After Democrats started spreading the rumor that Blaine agreed with anti-Catholic conspiracy theories, Irish voters swung Democratic in a big way. By the time Americans went to the polls, 
it had been possibly the most negative presidential campaign in American history. Nobody had any idea what to expect. Maria Halpin went to bed on election night, not knowing if she'd wake up to the news that her rapist was president-elect. In the end, the country cared more about corruption than about an abandoned little boy. On November 4, 1884, Grover Cleveland was elected President of the United States with 219 electoral votes. Cleveland went on to be regarded as a relatively effective and popular president, as well as the only U.S. president to serve two non-consecutive terms. In 1886, he married Frances Folsom, then 21, making her America's youngest ever first lady. The couple's 27-year age difference remains the largest in presidential history. After Cleveland's win, if anyone tried to start a chant of, Ma, Ma, where's my pa? A Democrat would chant back, Gone to the White House, ha, ha, ha. As for Maria herself, she was never quite able to escape the scandal. She died in 1902 with $200 in assets, equivalent to about $6,000 today. Her last wish was for a private funeral with no reporters or leering strangers. Oscar Folsom Cleveland was adopted by the obstetrician who delivered him and was renamed James E. King. He died in 1947, leaving no heirs. These days, most people remember Grover Cleveland for his mustache, if they remember him at all. Few know that he was a probable rapist who put his victim in an asylum and his illegitimate child in an orphanage. Even fewer realize that he groomed a young girl to eventually become his bride. When you hear the full story, it's hard to imagine anyone wanting this man as their president. But faced with a choice of two evils, Americans chose a violent criminal and deadbeat dad over a corrupt religious bigot. I'm not sure what that says about the country. Me neither. But the choice itself proves an old truism about American politics. When you go to the polls, you don't always get to vote for your ideal candidate. Sometimes you have to hold your nose and hope you've picked the lesser of two evils. Thanks for listening. Next week, we have another story about family secrets being dragged into the spotlight. Scandal number 34, the McCarthy-era blackmail campaign that drove Senator Lester Hunt to suicide. If you're interested in reading more about Grover Cleveland's misdeeds, amongst the many sources we used, we found A Secret Life, The Sex, Lies, and Scandals of President Grover Cleveland by Charles Lockman extremely helpful. You can find all episodes of Political Scandals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Political Scandals on Spotify, just open the app and type 
Political Scandals in the Search Bar. We'll see you next time. Political Scandals was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Brian Golub, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Political Scandals was written by Yelena War, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. <laughs>